0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church If you have your Bibles, would you open them up, please, to Luke 4, or if you have a Device with you. You can open up to BibleGateway.com and type in Luke 4. The magnitude of the claims that Jesus made demand that you either spend your life energies exposing him as a fraud or following him with an all-consuming passion. There is no third option. There is no third option. Now, for some of you today, that's going to get more challenging because we're going to observe Jesus interacting with worlds that have become increasingly foreign to our own. We'll see Jesus doing things and saying things that many people find embarrassing or even primitive. Let's look at it together. Luke chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 31. When he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one. He healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. We're going to take these uh, miracle stories in reverse order. We're going to let Jesus... And the miraculous, we're going to look at Jesus in the spirit world, and we're going to look at Jesus and the rest you need. Jesus and the miraculous, Jesus in the spirit world. Jesus and the rest you need. First, Jesus and the miraculous. Now modern people struggle with the notion of the miraculous. Living this side of the Scientific revolution is likely the culprit. If science can't access or explain the miraculous, then some would say it's not rational to believe the miraculous. But this idea that we are rational to believe only those things that are scientifically provable falls prey to something called scientism. The idea that science is our only trustworthy source of knowledge. Holes can be poked in that. Let me mention two holes one can poke in that. Take, for example, aesthetic judgments. There is no way on God's green earth to use the scientific method to objectively establish whether or not a sunset is beautiful. Or a piece of music is beautiful. You can use the scientific method to measure people's responses to, the, to these things. But the scientific method itself does not have direct access to to aesthetic judgments. Now, just because science can't prove a sunset is beautiful, does that make it illogical or unreasonable to believe that it is? Take another category, moral judgments. Moral judgments are inaccessible to science. There is no way to use the scientific method to establish whether or not the Nazi scientists in the concentration camps did anything morally good or bad in comparison to the scientists of Western democracy. There's just simply no way to prove it. But just because science can't prove the immorality of Nazism, does it make it illogical or unreasonable for us to believe that what they did was immoral? The fact of the matter is the world is filled with scientifically unprovable assumptions that we are reasonable to believe. So on what basis does one doubt Jesus's miraculous healing of a woman with a high fever or any other miracle for that matter? The reason we disbelieve the miraculous is the same reason we disbelieve the spirit world, which we'll look at next, is that we have jettisoned the supernatural. Science is a system of thought that arose to help explain natural causes. But science cannot prove natural causes are the only kind of causes in the world today. It can't do that. If there are supernatural causes, science will have no access to it because it wasn't built for the supernatural. It was built for the natural. Now, some have contended that that creates a conflict between Christianity and science. But many scientists see no incompatibility between faith and God and their work. Two famous studies that support this contention were done in 1916 and 1997. The American psychologist James Luba conducted the first survey of scientists asking them if they believed in a God who actively communicates with humanity, at least through prayer. Back in 1916, he conducted this. 40% of scientists surveyed said they did. 40% of scientists said they did not. And 20% were not sure. It was 1916. Edward Larson and Larry Witham repeated the very same study that Luba conducted in 1916, but these two guys did it in 1997. The result? Results hadn't changed. Not in 80 years. So don't believe the hype that there is this growing divide between Christianity and science. Science when appropriated correctly, can coexist just fine with the supernatural. Now, what do we learn from this particular miracle? Let me make three brief observations. Number one, Jesus takes an interest in personal illness. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so what's happening? Luke, the physician, uh, Tells us that this woman is is has been seized by a great fever. That's his language. She's not dying, but if you've ever been there, you probably feel like it. About a decade ago, I, I had I came down with influenza A or B or one of those, and I went from a ninety-eight point six to a one oh three point five in less than an hour. Less than an hour. I was brushing my teeth that night and I was exhausted. I, I'm brushing my teeth. I felt like I was climbing Mount Everest. You've been there. You've been there. Here we have one who tosses out demons, as we'll see in the next, next section. We've got a guy who's tossed out G- demons, Jesus, demonstrating his authority over the cosmic and supernatural world. But we can't say he's so busy or preoccupied with only the big things that he's indifferent to the virus that Peter's mother-in-law is suffering from. He's not only savior of the demonic, he's savior of the domestic. He carries on a public ministry, but he's not allergic to private troubles. He visits Peter's home. He rebukes the fever. He rebukes the fever because illness is no friend of Jesus. If you have invited Jesus into your home, just like Peter and his family had done. If you invited Jesus into your home, he takes a personal interest in your illness, in the illness of your child, in the illness of your dad or your mom. That's the real Jesus. Is this how you know him? Is that how you know him? Second, Jesus has authority over personal illness. and the when Jesus casts out the demon, as we'll see next, We're told there that he rebuked the demon. Luke uses the very same word to describe what Jesus does with the fever. He rebukes it and the fever leaves. Now, particularly in the West, we may subtly adopt the posture that says, well, Jesus, I'll need you for the spiritual stuff, but not the physical stuff. But the way Luke records these scenes conveys the notion that we're supposed to see Jesus as having every bit the authority over the physical as he does the spiritual. Both of them are his domain. And so you can let him know of your physical needs. You can ask him to help you with whatever those are. Don't skip the doctor's visits. Don't pass on the Tylenol when you're dealing with 103.5 fever. Psalm 24, one says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So include what God has put in his world to help you, but don't leave Jesus out of it. He was interested in this woman's sickness enough to visit the sick room. And he was compassionate and powerful enough to heal her. Third note that healing prompts service. After being healed, notice what she does. She got up at once and began to wait on them. So when the Lord restores us to health, we ought to get up and start serving him by serving others. It's a wonderful picture of the power of the gospel to change a life. When the love and authority of Christ merge and then crash into your life, you will be changed. An encounter with Christ never leaves you the same. His power to free you from that habitual sin or pattern of self-loathing or enslavement to the opinions of others is real. And when you experience it, you will be changed. And you're not going to be able to restrain your enthusiasm for Christ, which is what she did, demonstrated in serving your brothers and sisters. This is Jesus and the miraculous. Let's look second at Jesus in the spirit world. Jesus in the spirit world. We moderns must also admit our suspicion with the spirit world. Overall, it's not part of our collective conscious. In an honest moment, we might relegate belief in a demonic world to times past and primitive cultures. So this, this exorcism story can immediately feel irrelevant. But a couple of things can be said. First of all, our denial of the spirit world puts us in the global minority. Without question, most of the world's population believes in a spirit world. Would we want to maintain a stance that says, they have it wrong, we have it right? Second, disbelief in a demonic world is a fairly new trend in the United States. Andrew DelBanco, who teaches sociology at Columbia University and describes himself as a secular liberal, wrote a book entitled The Death of Satan. It's a fascinating profile of the American concept of evil. Banco examines the way evil has been perceived in American literary, social, and religious history. And then he investigates the changing perception of evil in America from colonial times to the civil war, the Victorian period, the progressive era, even to contemporary postmodern society. His exploration of the evolution of evil in American thought reveals that the national consciousness has undergone a profound and disturbing transformation. As science and technology gradually changed the spiritual and psychological landscape of American culture, individuals ceased to perceive evil in the guise of demons. In other words, the scientific and technological revolution in America has eradicated the spirit and demonic world. He writes this, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. And then he goes on to say this. We've jettisoned in the West cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in that. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil. And the reason we don't like it impl- implies value judgments and moral absolutes. And so instead, he writes, we use medical terms. Instead, we call it dysfunction or pathology. And we don't use moral terminology. But Delbanco says as time has gone on, it's become harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansings and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. In Delbanco's book, he turns to a very famous interaction in the book, The Silence of the Lambs. It was depicted in the movie. Don't necessarily endorse it, the movie, but... It's a place where this young police woman, Officer Starling, goes to meet for the first time the monstrous serial killer, Hannibal Lecter. She goes to his jail cell. She's looking at him and hearing what he's done, she says, what happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to him that he could be so cruel? And he overheard her. And he begins to speak. And this is what he says. And I realize it's very hard to read without hearing Anthony Hopkins. Hannibal Lecter said, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say, Officer Starling, that I'm evil? And then Del Banco, who's quoting this, says modern people cannot answer the monster's question. And he goes on to point out that human history's bloodiest century, the 20th century, came about when incredible advances were made in education and science. So if all evil has natural causes, why is it evil was at its worst when education and science were at their best? Naturalism is struggling to account for this. But the Bible doesn't have a problem accounting for this. Because there is such a thing as a supernatural world. Now, this supernatural world is the one that Jesus confronts in this exorcism scene. Let's note three things about it. First of all, knowing and saying true things about Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. This demon is able to identify Jesus and use accurate, and I'll say theologically loaded titles to describe Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, Does it seem strange to you the demon is able to make true utterances about Jesus? If you want a cup of cold water in the face, here it is. Just because you know some facts about Jesus doesn't mean you have a saving interest in him. You know some things about Jesus that are factually accurate. So what? The demons do too. And it doesn't end with knowing and saying true things about Jesus. Even performing the miraculous doesn't sufficiently attest to the legitimacy of one's faith. In another gospel in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is speaking and here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Just because someone can catalog a list of spiritual accomplishments doesn't mean Jesus will welcome them into his presence on the last day. Second thing we can notice from this story Satan doesn't relinquish his terrain without a fight. There is nothing serene about this incident. This was not a calm, cool, collected conversation over a cup of coffee. The demoniac cries out at the top of his voice. He's yelling. Jesus matches his tone, rebukes the demon, saying, In our 21st century idiomatic language, shut up and get out of here. And then the demon throws the man down. Now, if there is supernatural good and supernatural evil, why wouldn't it be this way? Why wouldn't it be this way? Satan does not relinquish his terrain without a fight. Whenever the authority of Christ is invoked In conversation, in preaching, in teaching, there will be a violent confrontation in the spirit world. Missionaries from around the globe have encountered this time and again. And I think we have as well. I think you have as well but our simplistic approach to life causes us to see it as having some natural cause. We would do well to remember there is a spirit world that seeks to rule and ruin lives. And this is not just a battle fought in faraway lands. It's fought in our own cities. Those who oppose sexual immorality, abortion, corruption, and other moral evils of our day will encounter supernatural opposition. The foul creatures of hell do not like to be challenged. Satan doesn't relinquish his terrain without a fight. Third, we can note that there is hope for the worst of us. Someone may seem to have the hardest heart possible impenetrable, irredeemable, the the proudest will, bloodied, unbowed, unbroken, condemned. Yet there is great hope for that person because Jesus can free him or her from the evil that has them in bondage. If that person will bow to the authority of the word and the person of Jesus Christ, he or she will be saved. And the Savior's power will come as a healing balm. Today, this side of the cross and resurrection, this is even more pronounced. It's even more pronounced. For Paul says, the Apostle Paul, look at this. Look at these words. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus has disarmed the enemy. The enemy's doom is sealed. There's hope for the worst of us. There's a marvelous story of this written by a Christian speaker and writer, Randy Newman. He tells about Betsy. He spent some time talking with Betsy, getting to know her story and a wild one it is. He said, you could characterize the conversation as every parent's worst nightmare. Newman writes this, within the first 10 minutes of our conversation, I heard a lot about drugs. I heard a lot about weed. I heard a lot about LSD. I heard a lot about alcohol, a lot of sex, and three weekends in a row that all involved the police. And all of this before she turned the age of 17. The first of the three weekends resulted in a speeding ticket. On the second weekend, she was arrested for shoplifting and went to jail. The third weekend's reckless driving and numerous other illegal activities brought her before a judge. The judge let her go because she said, he thought I looked like a pretty good kid. (laughs) Betsy was scraping the bottom of the barrel and the Lord was working on her. For some inexplicable reason, she began thinking about religion again. In between parties, of course. And without anyone knowing, she started reading the Bible. She got to the point where she said to herself, okay, I'm going to try to be a better person now. I'm going to try to stop drinking, not hook up with as many people and be nicer. But she couldn't do it. Then one day, while smoking a cigarette in her backyard... Her next door neighbor came out and invited her to a Bible study. Newman writes, at this point, our conversation went something like this. I said to her, wait, how did she invite you to a Bible study? And Betsy replied, she said, would you like to come to a Bible study? She had a facial expression that seemed to say, well, duh. Duh. And Randy said, Well, those weren't the first words she said, right? I mean, didn't she start with, Hi, how are you? Isn't this a nice day? How's your cigarette? (laughs) Betsy said, No. She said, Would you like to come to a Bible study? Those were her first words. It was totally random. Randy is bewildered by this. Okay, he said, but but you already knew her, right? Like you had some kind of relationship with her? And Betsy said, not really. I mean, I saw her before, but we hardly ever talked. I said hello to her maybe three times in six years. Randy said, okay. uh, But she was around your age, right? Around 17? And Betsy said, oh, no, she was way older. She was 26. Totally unrelatable, And Randy said, so what did you say when this old lady invited you to a Bible study? (laughs) Betsy said, I would love to come to a Bible study. Randy said, wait, did you really say you'd love to? Did you use that word love? Betsy said, yeah. Why? Here's what she said. Because I had been reading the Bible for like a year and a half at that point, and all the guys I was hooking up with were a bunch of jerks. So I figured a Bible study might help. A Bible study did indeed help. She became a Christian that summer, went off to college, intent to leave her old self behind. She found a campus Christian fellowship and began attending meetings and Bible studies. Right away, there is hope for the worst of us because we have a supernatural God. Third, Jesus and the rest you need. Both of these scenes, the casting out of the demon, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law took place on the Sabbath, a detail we're likely to fly through as we're reading. The day of rest, Sabbath means rest. Rest in the Bible is far more profound than we think. Because it uses the term in a deeper, richer way than we typically do. What does it mean? Well, watch what Jesus does on the Sabbath. Not just in this scene, but all throughout the Gospels. Pay attention to what he does on the Sabbath. You see him healing all over the place on the Sabbath. You see him casting out demons on the Sabbath. You see him feeding his hungry disciples on the Sabbath. Where Jesus comes from, demon possession is not normal. Sickness is not normal. Hunger is not normal. And so Jesus leaves his heavenly home and begins restoring things to normal. He brings wholeness. He makes things the way you intuitively know they ought to be. In other words, Jesus brings Sabbath rest. That's what rest is. And by performing these miracles on the Sabbath, Jesus is making an astounding assertion. He's saying, I'm the one you need. I'm the one your soul longs for. I'm the one your heart craves. I'm the one who can give you rest. So whenever he does this on the Sabbath and we see this restoration to wholeness, we're forced to face a question. Have I come to Jesus for that kind of wholeness? Have you come to Jesus for that kind of wholeness? Or are you looking for rest in other places? Country music icon Merle Haggard had 38 of his albums appear on Billboard's country music top 10 charts. More than a dozen made it to number one. He also had 38 number one singles. Haggard also had five wives and spent time in San Quentin prison. When he was in the lowest of lows, here's what he said There is a restlessness in my soul that I've never conquered, not with motion, marriages, or meaning. It's still there to a degree and it will be till the day I die. This is a picture of your life without Jesus. It may not be multiple marriages or time in prison, but it's going to be something. Sexual immorality, material accumulation, workaholism, romance, By performing these miracles on the Sabbath, Jesus is creating in the minds of those who watched it, experienced it, and read about it today, the undeniable connection between Jesus and rest. Do you see it? Many years ago, Augustine wrote, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. Have you found rest in Jesus? Have you found a deep sense of existential settledness in Jesus? Has your thirsty soul found satisfaction in Christ? If not today is the day. Let's pray. Lord, the world plays to us in this way. Every commercial we see, every billboard we drive by screams a story that we have to have whatever it's saying to find rest. Lord, I pray that you'd cut through that noise. I pray that we would see there is only one who can fill the hole that's in our hearts. That's Jesus. Lord, in a supernatural way, I pray that you would do that work in somebody who's listening now. There's no doubt There's no doubt the enemy has duped some of us. Just like he's duped Betsy and Merle Haggard and millions of others into thinking that they can find contentment in this life apart from you. Drive these stories into our hearts, God. We are broken. We are empty. We can scan the earth for solutions to those, but we will not find them until we set our gaze upon Jesus. So I pray that you would do that work in us now. In Christ's name, amen.